Father, we've sang about the blessing that your word is, that in your commandment there's great reward, that it's sweeter than honey. And Father, I pray that you would just open our hearts to what your word says this morning, that we would understand it, and that we would love and delight in it, and that we would be able to faithfully put it into practice. I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us of the things that we see in your word this morning so that our lives can be changed by them. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm continuing our series in 1 Timothy, and one of my desires in the scripture reading time for our church is to demonstrate that every text of scripture finds explanation and support in other places in the Bible. And so for our scripture reading this morning, I'm going to read a passage that is very similar to the text that I'm preaching from, and yet it's written to a different young pastor in a different place and shows that the Lord has the same expectation for churches in all places and in all times. So I'm in the letter to Titus. Titus is a young pastor on an island called Crete. And Paul, very similar to what he does for young Timothy, is giving instructions to Titus. And so if you have a paper Bible, I encourage you to open it this morning to the book of Titus. You can follow along with me while I read. And 1 Timothy is just a few pages over from this passage, so it'll be very easy to get to our text in just a moment this morning. Paul says in, in the book of Titus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now the reason I'm preaching through 1 Timothy, and I would encourage you to turn over there, is because Paul says in this letter that he wrote it so that we would know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I want to be very clear about something. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, every church preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ if they believe this book. That is the good news that Jesus, our Savior, died for our sins and rose from the dead. That he is the eternal Son of God. That all of us have fallen away from God and are alienated because of our sin. And yet God in his love sent his son to die in our place so that we could be forgiven and we could be adopted into the family of God. 
And so if you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I want to preach that simple gospel to you this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Be baptized in obedience to his command, saying, I believe that Christ died for me. That's what we mean when we put someone under the water. It's a picture of death saying, I deserve this, and yet Christ took it for me. And not only do we identify with the death of Christ, but we identify with the life of Christ and his resurrection. So as we raise a baptized person out of the water, we say, he is alive in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have already believed that, and you have already been baptized, then the question is, what's next? How do you live life now as a follower of Jesus? And the Bible uses family language to talk about how we relate to one another as members of the household of God. And this section in 1 Timothy and the section that I just read in Titus then give us instructions about how the household is organized and how it relates so that every member has their needs met. God is a good father who provides for his children. He provides for us. And so if we are going to be a faithful household, we follow his instructions so that no person is neglected in the church of God. And I would ask that you think for a moment, if you've been a part of a church for a long time, you probably have two things that come to mind. One is a particular time when you were blessed by another believer in the church. In fact, sometimes it's the pastor who was there for you in a time of need. I'm thinking of one member in particular who had lost a son, and a pastor drove several miles to be at the service, even though he didn't know her. And she said she felt the love of Christ, that a pastor that didn't know her well was there for her in her time of grief. And that's a picture of a faithful shepherd walking with someone through a dark trial and a dark hour. And that's what the church of God is supposed to be like. And yet, if you've been around the church any time at all, you can also think of other times when the church was not there for you. And perhaps you might say you felt isolated and alone. You're supposed to be part of the family of God, and yet the family wasn't there for you. And here's part of why I think stories like that are so common in the 21st century American church. Because in many churches, the role of pastor is fallen on one particular person or perhaps a few people who are hired staff. And if the church is any size at all, say 100 or 200 people, it's very difficult for one or two men to meet the needs of the entire congregation. And so you see throughout the Bible, in contrast to how our modern churches are organized, that teams of elders ministered to the local churches in a plurality. That there were enough men in pastoral leadership to meet the needs of the entire congregation. And you can get a picture of what that's like, actually, from the Old Testament. 
And I know some of the words that I'm using are a little bit unfamiliar because we're used to pastors and deacons in Baptist history. And we're not used to this elders thing. Like, what is this? And that's because for about 100 years, for whatever reason, we've chosen to look at one word, pastor, and we have not considered more biblical words that are far more common in the New Testament and tried to understand how the church is structured based on what God has said. But if you think about the word elder, and you're reading it for the first time in the New Testament, and then you begin noticing how common it's used and how often it's used as it describes the leadership of the local church, and if you read your Bible faithfully, what you'll discover is it doesn't appear for the first time in the New Testament. In fact, it's very common in the Old Testament as well. And one of the first places that you see it, really in terms of how God's people are shepherded and led, is when Moses establishes elders because he's burnt out and cannot meet the needs of the people. And his father-in-law tells him, what you are doing is not good. You need to broaden the leadership of the, the people so that it does not fall on one person. You can't meet the needs of the nation by yourself. And they break the people down into smaller groups and establish leadership over the smaller groups. And they say, easy cases are on you. If you have a hard case, take it to the guy above you. And if you have a really hard case, then you took it to Moses. That principle also applies to the New Testament church. The leadership that you saw in the Old Testament continues to function that way, and you see in the New Testament that the leadership of the church falls not on one person, but on a team of godly men who are called to serve the church. And the message I'm going to preach to you today is another two-part message. And I want to read the text of Scripture and point out two things. Uh, the title of this message is Overseers in God's House. Overseer is another term that's synonymous with elder. And the two points that I have for you this morning are, number one, the noble task. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And number two, the qualifications for those who serve as overseers or elders. Most of what I want to say today is in the first part, and I'm going to emphasize the nature of this task and responsibility. And next week, I will talk more about the qualifications for those who serve in this capacity. But for the sake of clarity, let's read it all together. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you, I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and read verses 1 through 7. Paul, writing to young Timothy, says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now we've read our passage this morning. As I said, I want to focus mostly this week on the noble task that is assigned to elders. So in verse 1 he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And you say, Pastor, I thought this was a message on elders. It is. Paul mentions overseer here as another term for elder. And I want to prove to you that this is the same office. Now, if you've spent any time around Christians and know Christians that go to different types of churches, we all have different names for the people who are in leadership, right? So the Catholics call them priests. Protestants don't do that because we believe in the priesthood of every believer, that every believer has the ability to go to God in prayer. And you have that ability this morning. You don't need to go to another human being in order to have your prayers heard by God. You go directly to God through Jesus Christ. So all of us are priests. Protestants also differ on what they call their leadership. And so perhaps you've heard of terms like bishop. And again, you may think of that in terms of Catholics because it's a more common term for Catholics, and those are the priests that have charge over regions. So there's a local priest, and then there's a bishop over him. That's not unique to Catholics, though. There are other denominations that use that language, and so they would separate what I'm doing here and say, no, over your local pastor, there's a regional bishop, and that's not biblical at all. What the term bishop means is it is the English word that translates the Greek word episkopos. And episkopos, made up of two little parts, epi and scope. Some of you have terrible experiences with scopes. You know what they're for. They are things that let you see. And very literally, it means an overseer in Greek, and in English, the two little parts, you can the shup is part of scope, and the by is telling you it's over. So a bishop is an overseer. And so the word that we see in our text today is an English word, but because bishop is sometimes associated with, with different denominations that I don't believe have a biblical structure, the English version that we're looking at today translates that word not as bishop, but as overseer. There are some versions that will use the word bishop, They're not wrong. I think it's just a little bit confusing. But what I want to point out to you today is that overseer or bishop and elder actually mean the exact same office. And that's part of why we read from Titus today. So in Titus, Paul very clearly tells young Titus, I want you to go in every town and I want you to appoint elders. That's what he says in Titus 1 verse 5. But then in verse 7, when he begins to describe the qualifications for an elder, 
He uses the term that's in our text this morning. He says an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And he's not switching topics. He's just using two different titles to refer to the exact same office. So the office of elder is exactly the same as the office of overseer. And the two different terms complement each other. One describes what an elder does, and the other hints at what an elder is. So throughout the Old Testament and the Bible, very commonly, your most mature believers had some gray hairs. They were literally older than everyone else. But age is not a requirement in the Bible. It's just a frequent correlation. So when Moses is establishing elders, he is looking for the heads of households. He's looking for those who have managed their families well, and they have seniority and wisdom that comes with age. In the New Testament, if you look at the qualifications, both in Timothy and in Titus, age is never a qualification. In fact, later in this book to young Timothy, Paul will say, let no one look down on your youth. So it is possible to have a younger person serve as an elder. That's what Timothy is doing. However, the term overseer helps us understand what an elder does. Literally, he's to oversee the mission and ministry of the church with a special emphasis on prayer and on teaching and preaching. So let me say that again. An overseer oversees the mission and ministry of the church with a special emphasis on prayer and preaching and teaching. Where do they come from? Well, throughout the Bible, we see that they are appointed by the local church with prayer and fasting. So in Acts chapter 14, 23, if you want to jot it down, you can and look it up later. I'm going to read it to you. In Acts 14, 23, It's describing one of the missionary journeys that were taken throughout the book of Acts as the church spread while they preached the gospel. It says, when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they prayed and fasted for the church as they established multiple elders in every church so that the church was blessed with good leadership. Not only that, in Titus, which we read this morning, Paul actually instructs young Titus that he wanted Titus to point out those who were particularly qualified for this type of ministry. And I think the Bible shows us a couple of different ways this happens. In a new church where there have been no believers, very often the missionaries that go there will recognize who is qualified for leadership, and they'll tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I think you should be an elder. And so the missionary helps establish that local leadership. But in an established church, the church itself helps identify and call those who are to serve in leadership. So if you are in an established church, your pastor doesn't pick who else serves in leadership. That can lead to nepotism and really unhealthy leadership. In an established church, the local body helps identify who is called to serve in this capacity, and we do it with prayer, and we should should do it with fasting as we recognize the Holy Spirit is working in us and among us, and we depend on Him for our direction in calling leaders to serve. The qualification is high. 
And we don't want to make a mistake. Because if we do, it could potentially hurt our church and our ministry. So one of the things that I want to do at the end of this message is ask you to commit to daily prayer that God would help us to recognize those among us who should serve in leadership and that those that God is calling would be sensitive to his call. It's a difficult thing to recognize that you must humbly serve your church. Most people who are qualified will hesitate to recognize that they are qualified. That's a good thing. But that also makes it hard to heed the calling because you wonder if it's legitimate. So I would ask that you would pray that as God calls those among us to serve in leadership, that they would hear his call and respond with obedience. We've answered the question, where, where do they come from? I want to address a second nature of this because our text says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And the second thing that I want to point out to you this morning is not only what this is, but also the way that you are moved into leadership. Paul says it's a good thing if you want to do this. But sometimes the people that desire leadership most are the least qualified for it. Some people like power. And the people that like power are rarely the people that should actually have it. They can be self-serving. They can be abusive. And yet Paul says that desire is an essential quality. You need to want to do this. And so I tell you, my desire to be a pastor is not something that I had from a young age. I, in fact, desired to avoid pastoral ministry for many, many reasons. But what happened in me as I grew in my faith And I started to listen to pastors like Pastor Lutzer, who served Moody Church for 35 years. He led them. When he came, they were a predominantly white church in a neighborhood that was not predominantly white. And he led them to being a more integrated church that had good neighborhood ministries. And they had fabulously rich people. And they had very poor people worshiping together. And it was like a little section of Chicago. It was a perfect representation of the area that God placed them in. That took incredible vision and patience. And his leadership helped and blessed the church tremendously. And when I understood, I was coming at the tail end of his time there. And I got to see the fruit that he had in the church. And I thought, shoot. He blessed the church in stunning ways. And I didn't want his job, not in a million years. But I started to admire his office. And I started to say, oh my goodness. I've always thought about the terrible things that come with being a pastor. The people complaining about insignificant things that don't matter. Being called to work in really difficult environments and and taking abuse from angry people. And, And who wants that? Nobody wants that. But when you see what can happen through faithful ministry, then you begin to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God called me to serve in that capacity, man, that that is something that I'd want. To be a blessing to the church, to see the church grow in health, to see the church grow in faithful outreach, to see people come to Christ, to be able to see them baptized and grow into mature Christians. Man, that would be awesome. 
And I started listening to a couple other preachers that were really faithful to the word of God, and they were really theologically rich. And I began to love their ministries, and I thought, oh my goodness, man, I don't really want to be a pastor, but, but if God called me, man, it would be cool. And I went from hating the idea of serving in that capacity because I'd seen how ugly and difficult it could be to recognizing how noble the task was and how beautiful it could be. And God changed my heart so that I wasn't angling for it at all, but I was open to it. And when my brother called me one day and he said, hey, I I just want to tell you, I I think you should consider being open to serving as a pastor. I know that's not something, I've been really clear with him. I said, I don't ever want to do that. He said, I know that's not something that you want to do, but, but I see things in you that would make you a good pastor. And I think you should consider it. And so when the church called me, if it had called me three years earlier, I would have said, ha, that's really funny. Absolutely not. But when the church called me, I said, all right, I'll put in an application. So at least I won't have shut the will of God out of my life. I'll be open to the possibility that he is going to call me. And friends, if God did that in my heart, he can do it in your heart. I am preaching this message not to tell you a testimony about what God has done in my life, but to say, be open to what God is doing in your life. We need men in particular to step up into spiritual leadership in our church. And yes, spiritual leadership is hard. Sometimes you're attacked and insulted. Sometimes you are slandered. It is hard. But you know what? It's also noble and beautiful. And you can be a blessing to your church. And so be open to the reality that God may be calling some of you to serve in a leadership capacity that you've never considered. Be open to the fact that God may be calling you to serve as an elder in our church. The aspiring and desiring is not a symptom of an unhealthy desire for power when it is existing with humility and when it is recognized with all the qualifications that I'll preach about next week. In fact, in 1 Peter Peter says this, and I I want to read it because I I believe it's so helpful to us. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So if you are here and you think, man, I, I don't know what pastor is preaching about, what he's calling us to, but, but I, I think maybe God's doing something in my life, so I should be open to leadership. This is the change that he's working in you, that you would be willing to serve in humility, recognizing the goodness and the nobility of the office that you are being called to. Not only... Are you called to a position of oversight and leadership and authority? But you must have the aspiration and the desire, and you must be qualified. Now, I've read two passages that describe the qualifications for elders. They overlap a lot, and I'm going to preach on those qualifications next week. There are some questions that we will want to answer as we read through that list carefully. So that's kind of a a little parenthesis this week. This godly task of being an elder is one that has high qualifications. We must not ignore them. 
it would not be faithfulness for us to try to follow these instructions and ignore the qualifications that God has included. There's no benefit to elevating a few men to leadership of their church if those men are not godly and qualified. So next week, we will preach more about those qualifications. But this week, I want to spend the rest of my few minutes this morning describing what they do. Talking about this noble task in particular. And firstly, I want to point out that elders are called to be examples to the flock. Now, I just read that passage from 1 Peter to demonstrate that willingness is a requirement. It's a requirement in 1 Timothy. It's a requirement in 1 Peter. And so you must be willing and desire to serve in this way in order to be called and qualified. But not only that, The way that you lead is like Jesus. Jesus calls us to a type of servant leadership. And the way that Jesus led is he sacrificed himself for his bride. He laid his life down for her. And you could look at his life. And Jesus was not only the greatest preacher who ever lived. He was the greatest practitioner. He practiced all that he preached. So that if you needed an illustration of his sermon. You could look at his life and say he lived what he said. And he lived it perfectly. And those who serve as elders and overseers are called to the same sort of life by example. As I preach, I will often mention, guys, I'm preaching it myself as well as I am at the congregation. I am a sinner and you don't have to spend long with me to know that I am a sinner. I can't be the example that Jesus is. But you know what I can do? I can point you again and again to the grace that Jesus has given to me to cover my sins. And our leaders are imperfect people, but they show by example how to go to the perfect Savior to find forgiveness. And as we strive to live lives that are exemplary, there should be a difference. At the end of this this passage in 1 Timothy, Paul says that you, you shouldn't call someone who's a recent convert But instead, you need to call someone who is a mature believer. They've walked through the Lord long enough. It's not that they just know the scriptures. It's that they've been able to put them into practice. They've been able to run their households well. They've been able to teach their children what it means to know and follow Jesus. And so, the office of overseer is first an office of a lived example. As much as preaching and teaching are involved... You must also preach with your life. Hebrews 13, 17 says to the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now that verse very clearly instructs the church that you are to submit to the leadership that God establishes. But in the same chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, pay attention to the lives of those who lead you and look at the outcome of their faith. The life of a leader should illustrate how precious and true the gospel is. You should be able to look at how I treat my wife and my children, how I conduct my household, 
and say, wow, his faith is not just a show on Sunday morning, but it's real Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. It's real every day of the week. And that's true not only of the pastor who preaches primarily, it's true of every elder who leads in the church. In Titus, Paul tells young Titus that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So not only are you called to lead by example, but you are also called to lead with careful teaching and sometimes even rebuking. And the ministry of an elder is not just a lived life of example. It's also someone who opens the Bible and teaches it with authority. Preaching is what I'm doing right now. Teaching is very similar and related to it. But elders have a unique authority within the church to say, not only is this what I think the Bible says, but this is what Christians have agreed the Bible means. And this is what our church believes together. And so, yes, we can disagree about a number of unimportant things, but we must agree on essential things. And the must is where teaching with authority comes into play. So the list of things that we must agree on is shorter. They're the things that every Christian everywhere agrees on, like Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. Your sins are forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the inspired word of God. It is our highest authority in the church. And those are the things that every Christian believes, that every Christian must believe. And to disagree with those things begins to invite the rebuke of someone with authority. So there's not only a positive responsibility to teach and instruct, there is a negative responsibility to sometimes lovingly and gently correct and rebuke. Now these are not things that we love to think about or hear in the American church. We love to believe that we are the captain of our own ship. We, you know, we, I do what I think is right and you can go your way and I'll go mine. And yet the Lord has established authority in the church and sometimes that authority is to come alongside and say, hey, you can't teach that in this church. You can't believe that and be a faithful follower of Jesus. Scripture is very clear. In fact, I did a search on the word rebuke this week as I was preparing for this message. There are a couple places. Uh, Paul actually tells young Timothy in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And there are other places where it says that you are to correct with gentleness knowing that it depends on the Lord to change someone's heart and mind. So when we hear the word rebuke, sometimes we hear something that's harsh and heavy, and Scripture is clear that an elder is called to be patient and gentle, and yet the word still means a sharp correction. And so if you are called to be an elder, you must be willing at times to come alongside someone and say, you are in the wrong, and you may disagree with me, But based on the authority of the word of God, it is my obligation to lovingly plead with you to change because the word of God says that you're wrong. Not every Christian is called to a ministry of rebuke. In fact, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I think I'm called to a ministry of rebuke, 
we're probably going to have words. And I'm going to say, you know what? (laughs) I don't know if that's true. You should not be eager to exercise this aspect of leadership. You should be prayerful. You should be gentle. You should be humble. But no one is called to the office of elder or overseer without this being included. It is a necessary obligation not only to teach faithfully and accurately, but to lovingly correct those who contradict the truth. In fact, I didn't plan on reading this, but Titus has some of the funniest verses in all of the Bible. And since it's so close, as Paul tells young Titus that he needs to do this, he includes something that's kind of humorous, but it illustrates how important it is to do this sort of rebuking. In verse 10 of Titus 1, he says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. And then he says in verse 12, One of the Cretans, so remember Titus is a pastor on the island of Crete. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And you think, oh shoot, man, like he said that about his own people. Paul's going to say something much nicer, right? No, in verse 13, he says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He tells a young pastor, you need to be firm. Don't be wishy-washy with the truth. The reason you must be firm is so that your church may be sound in the faith. Because if you're not firm on God's truth, your church will be weak. So friends, as we look at the office of elder and overseer, understand that as we are called to gentle rebuke, it is an essential aspect of ministry. Not only are they called to preach and teach the word and to sometimes rebuke, they are also called to be devoted to the word and prayer. And in a familiar passage in in Acts chapter 6, you see the apostles have this type of priority in making sure that they don't get sidetracked from faithful study and faithful prayer and faithful preaching. Acts chapter 6 describes the emergency where food distribution was not fair in the early church and some Gentile widows were being neglected. And so the apostles say, this is a problem. We must address it. But we also must establish deacons to meet this need because if we address it personally, the ministry of the word will suffer and our prayer lives will suffer and the church will suffer. Friends, I've been reading a little book on on deacons as I get ready to preach on deacons in three weeks. And one of the things that is essential in understanding the responsibilities of elders and deacons is so that elders can be devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer. If too much of your elders' time is tied up in putting out fires and managing ministry, there will not be enough prayer. There will not be enough preparation and teaching. There will not be enough oversight. If your elders are doers of ministry more than devoters to the word, the balance of church life will be off. And so I want to encourage you to recognize the distinction that even in critical and important ministries, We have to observe that pastors are to be devoted to the word and prayer. And yes, they are to do good works, and their good works are to be known by all in the church in a humble way. But primarily, their responsibility is to pray and study and preach and teach. And if that does not happen, 
the church will suffer. We are built on the truth of the word of God. If we're not devoted to it, we will not be built up. We will not be strengthened. And so even in something really important, and a funny story from a couple of years ago, and and I think it's been long enough that I I can say this without it being a problem for anybody to be upset, but one of the first fires that I had to put out as a young pastor here at our church was over almonds. And I had two over an hour-long meetings about almonds because one ministry took the almonds from another ministry's cupboard. And I recognize, and, and the person that came to me was gracious. She, she wasn't complaining in, in an ungodly way, but a pastor elder overseer should not have to oversee almonds in the kitchen. And I will say that I lost two hours of my week that I intended to use for something else to put out a fire that never should have made it to my office. Now, we're kind of chuckling and we're laughing because four years removed from that fire, it can be kind of funny. But there's a clear distinction here. We need clear authority over those things that protects the authority of a pastor over the word so that he doesn't have to step in and put out that fire. I believe that if... Acts chapter 6 were written around the equitable distribution of almonds. The apostles would have said, look, we're going to establish a deacon of almonds so that our time does not have to be devoted to who gets almonds, when and where and why and how, and we can be devoted to the word and prayer. That's a little bit of a silly example, but there are other more recent examples that would not be funny if I raised them. Our church needs to wrestle with when do we need pastoral oversight here and when do we need to establish a leader with authority so that pastor doesn't have to come oversee this ministry. Friends, the word of God gives us enormous help in making these decisions. They are to be devoted to the word and prayer for the blessing of the entire church. Not only are they to be devoted to the word and prayer, their oversight helps us understand what the word means in practice, in our time, and in our church. And I'm going to give you one example from the Bible and talk about one example from today. In Acts chapter 15, we've already looked at it, so you can turn there if you want. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Acts chapter 15, the church is wrestling with this question of what do Jews and Gentiles do as they come into the church together, and and how are Gentiles integrated with the church? And the only thing I want to point out from that chapter is that they involve the elders in discerning God's will for the local church. So the elders together examine the scriptures. The elders together try to answer this difficult question. I've already preached about it. You can look at recent messages. I don't want to spend a lot of time. I just want to give you one area where today, all of a sudden, we have a question that's very difficult to answer, that we need to look at the word of God. And good Christians come down on both sides. And as our culture wrestles with what gender is and what it means, one of the questions that every Christian has to answer is, what do you do with a transgender person who introduces themselves as a male, but maybe biologically they're a female? Do you use female pronouns for someone who is not biologically a female? This is not a question that the church has ever wrestled with in the history of humanity. But it's a difficult question. Because... 
if you go along and affirm a person in their believed gender, you may encourage them to embrace an identity that in the end can harm them a great deal. And maybe you're complicit. But on the other hand, if you contradict them, you may lose all opportunity to witness to them for Christ. And so the wisdom of knowing how do I interact with a person that is believing a lie about themselves is not easy. And what I want to suggest is that you need pastoral leadership to answer that question. Now, perhaps you will even disagree with your pastoral leadership in that area. And I don't think that that would be something that the church would say, this is what you must do. You cannot be a member of our church if you disagree with us here. But what I want to suggest is that pastoral leadership does examine those questions to help the church process an area of theology that we've never dealt with in human history. What do we do when we believe that God made us male and female, and yet many people are uncomfortable in who they are? I want to say this very carefully, because God loves everyone. And I'm not here to condemn anyone based on how they feel or how they perceive themselves to be, but I want to make sure that we are faithful in calling people to a a lifestyle of holiness. And I want to encourage us to recognize that God has given us elders so that decision does not fall on every believer with the same weight. Let me say that again. God has given us elders so that decision does not fall on every believer with the same weight. Those who are devoted to the word and prayer ought to know the word best. And so as they wrestle with what does it mean to live God's truth in our time and our day, they have more biblical information to wrestle with that question with. So perhaps you don't know the Bible well. Perhaps you're the person bringing the question. And you may come to a different conclusion. The question then is, will you trust those who know and love the Lord and understand his word better? Will you follow their leadership if they disagree with you? Because I believe what the Bible says is that that leadership is there to help you and bless you, especially when you disagree. It's easy to follow someone you always agree with. It's hard to follow someone when you think that their beliefs will hurt the people you love. And I believe what the Bible does is it establishes leadership for the specific reason of helping us when truth hurts the most. Of course, they're to be gentle. Of course, they're to be loving. But they're also to be firm, and they're there to wrestle with new questions that the church has not considered in the past. Not only are they to be devoted to the word and prayer, not only are their lives to be exemplary, not only are they to oversee the ministries of the church, Scripture makes it very clear that they must pray with the sheep. Now that might seem like a strange place to end this morning, but one of the places we see elders very clearly is in the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And I began this message 
talking about the fact that if you have been blessed by an elder who came and helped you in your time of need and trial, that that was a comforting thing and you felt the love of the church because a pastor came alongside you when you were in pain and when you were in need. And that is a particular calling of elders for those who are hurt and in need. And this demonstrates that not only is an elder to preach and teach in a public setting, but they are to pray with you in private when you need them most. A couple things I want to say about this verse. There have been times in the past five years where I have sometimes failed in this. And in part, because pastoral leadership falls pretty heavily on me. Now, everyone in the church agrees that we're all to share the work of the ministry, and many people do. And I thank God for those of you who have faithfully served and visited. I think, uh, Virgil, I didn't tell you I was going to mention your name. I didn't plan on it until right now. But everyone knows your faithfulness in visiting people in the hospital and in comforting those who are sick. And so I'm thankful for you and the other people who have done that type of ministry. But the truth is, there are people who get missed. There are times that someone should have had a pastor go visit them and either I didn't know or I had an obligation to be somewhere else. And so what I want to say is gently, the person who is in need does have to let the church know that there's a need. If I don't know and the other people who serve in pastoral ministry don't know, we can't come help. And we don't want to put that burden exclusively on you, but James says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. So I I want to say, if you need me, call me. Don't assume I'm going to know because I might not know. And not only that, there is an obligation to go and to pray. And so the elders who serve our church must be men of prayer. They must be ready to pray for the person with spiritual wisdom asking the Lord to be with them in a particular way for the blessing of the person who is sick. And it's not just physical sickness. It may be a family crisis. It could be any number of things. But the obligation to preach, to teach, and to live an example is perhaps most personally felt not when you're watching someone and listening to someone in the pulpit, but when someone is holding your hand in a hospital bed. And this is what it means to be a faithful elder, a faithful shepherd. So church, as I I wrap up this message describing the call, what, what an elder does, what an elder's responsibilities are, I want to do one thing in particular. And I recognize God only knows what the future holds for our church, but I want to ask you to pray. And to help us in prayer and to be faithful in prayer, I asked Debbie to make a lot of these little bookmarks. Now, the font's real small. None of you can read that. Uh, But I've got a number of them here. And before you leave, I'd ask that you would take one of these. And here's what I've done. Next week, I'm going to be preaching on qualifications for elders. And I want you to pray about each of these qualifications. And then I left a little blank down at the bottom. And I want you to keep these confidential. Don't lose yours. Don't give it to someone. But I've got a couple of things. Number one, I want to ask the Lord, God, give us elders who have all of these qualities. Protect the leaders that we have. 
and keep them from being disqualified. So pray. Pray that we would identify these. And then down at the bottom, I ask, please prayerfully list some men who might serve our church in this way with tiny little blanks there. Now, what I want you to do with this is I want you to put it in your Bible or put it someplace where you'll see it regularly and commit to praying daily. In Acts, it describes how the church fasted and prayed as they established leadership. Friends, we need to pray about this. And I would ask that as God brings people to mind, you write their names here. Now, I have preached really exclusively about elders this morning and mentioned deacons for just a moment. We'll talk about deacons in about three weeks. And so I've mentioned men a lot because I believe the Bible teaches that men are uniquely called to serve the church in pastoral leadership. However, I believe there are positions of leadership as deacons where women must serve. So when we get to talking about deacons, this little bookmark will change a little bit. And I want to encourage you to write down those who may serve in that capacity. But for this week, we're talking particularly about elders. I want to ask every person here to take one of these with you and to commit to praying daily that the Lord would bless us with more men who serve as elders. So before you leave, please take one of these. Also to consider, think about how many we need I think that the number that you need is dependent on the size of congregation you have so that no one is neglected or feeling isolated. But pray that God would guide us in giving us the exact number that we need to bless our church. And I'd like to end by praying now and would ask that you would commit to praying daily that God would establish more elders in our church so that the needs of every Christian who has trusted the Lord Jesus would be met by faithful leadership. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, you have given us your word to bless us. You have given us these instructions so that we know how we ought to behave in the household of God. And I pray that you would bless us. I ask that you would guide us and direct us by your Holy Spirit to identify men who could serve as elders that we would not compromise a single quality that your word has so clearly laid out, but instead we would be blessed as you, our chief shepherd, shepherd us. I pray that you would establish us in the faith. And I ask this in Jesus' name.